Chapter 3, Part 3 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Pretorius. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. The history of Israel is one constant record of apostasies. Unbelief and stiff-nakedness were their besetting sins. They lost the promised land at its very door and were sent back to perish in the wilderness where they wandered and wasted away. Ten times they sinned so in the forty years of the wilderness. More than once they were at the brink of destruction. When the promised land was reached at the end of the years of wandering, but two of the multitude who left Egypt remained here again is a new feature of the character and work of christ jehovah punished his people even to the loss of canaan and life itself he was as faithful in dealing with the sins of his own as he was fierce against the malice of satan they were taught the evil of sin by sad experience one by one they learned the ways of god jehovah's purpose for israel is seen in their entrance into canaan the one who led them in and gave them the land was he whose name Christ afterward chose in his earthly life, for Jesus is the Greek of Joshua. Here then is one who will reveal the character both of Jehovah and Jesus. Joshua represents Christ in sharing the lot of Israel in the wilderness during the forty years. He, with Caleb, had not turned away from the promised land at Kadesh, as did all the others, yet he shared the penalty with them joshua differs from moses in being a soldier and his work was leading the victorious hosts of israel in war the manifestation of jehovah in joshua as well as to him was as captain he appeared thus to him and it came to pass when joshua was by jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand and joshua went unto him and said unto him art thou for us or for our adversaries and he said nay but as captain of the host of the lord am i now come and joshua fell on his face and did worship and said unto him what saith my lord unto his servant what moses was not permitted to do joshua did moses is the law the law cannot bring the soul into rest it can bring it out of egypt and that is a great work and place but it is not the full and perfect work of christ as the wilderness was not the perfect work of jehovah israel is seen in three states in egypt in the wilderness and in the promised land the whole story aside from this historical truth and meanings is also an allegory and the apostle tells us is written for our instruction here are three states of spiritual experience we see the soul under sin under law and under grace every soul on earth is in one or other of these states we learn the bitterness of sin by feeling its bondage we realize the nature of holiness by hearing the terrors of the law and feeling the pangs of conscience we are led into a state of rest by entering the full faith and consecration into christ one of the most difficult parts of the bible to understand is that which tells of the destruction of the canaanites they were exterminated and by command of jehovah the slaughter was practically universal this seems to present jehovah in an awful light 
It does. It was an awful dispensation of divine wrath. Here is Jehovah, and therefore Jesus and God, in another of the acts of judicial wrath seen before the flood. Only that was worldwide, and this was local. That was by water, and this was by sword. There is no defense in this or any such doings in the Bible. God gives no accounting of his acts to man. His own people will trust him in this and believe all will one day be made clear. And those who turn away from him in impenitence would not be changed by any explanation. Christ stands here in the light of an apparently almost censurable act and takes the responsibility. It is hard to bear the censure of creatures who are living in rebellion against him and in fellowship with the enemy of God and man. But he does so silently until the end shall come. The question of life and death God holds in his own power. He gives life and takes it away. Neither for the taking away nor the manner of it does he hold himself amenable to man. Millions die each year by disease and accident, sword and awful calamities. The whole is one great question of the reason of suffering and evil, and we are not given all the facts in the case with which to judge. No system of philosophy satisfactorily accounts for it. A close study of the account and subsequent conditions and events shows there was reason for the destruction of the Canaanites and that mercy and grace were not wanting. Sodom was the typical city of the land. It was, as its name still testifies, the scene of unmentionable crimes. Licentiousness was the religion of Canaan and to a more or less extent of the surrounding countries. Their religious gatherings were orgies of unspeakable vice. Chastity was unknown. The apostle describes thus the state in which those who fall under such inflictions of divine wrath are in. He doubtless has in mind these very people or such as they were. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed for ever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile passions, for their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working unseemliness, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was due. The whole land and population were physically corrupt. Venereal disease was in the blood of all. The whole population was physically and morally rotten beyond any hope of restoration. It was the plague spot of earth. No traveller was safe from their attacks for the gratification of their beastly desires. This is seen in the attack on the house of Lot where the angels were, whom they would have violated if they could. It is a picture of their daily state and life. The safety of mankind demanded their extermination, root and branch. It was either that or let the earth come to the same state. God still destroys such, but by the slower operation of natural results of vice, millions so perish yearly. Nor was mercy wanting to that people. Jehovah had made every effort to save them. Abram was sent pilgriming through the land, showing the example of a godly life. 
After him came also Isaac and Jacob, each by their lives so far above that of the people about them, reproving their sins. Righteous Lot lived in their very midst and was vexed by their unholy deeds, and no doubt showed his vexation. But more than all these there lived among them the greatest being who ever filled the office of the priesthood. Melchizedek was their princely priest. Surely with such ministry they had no reason to complain of want of efforts for their salvation. In sending Abram's children down into Egypt, one reason given by God to him was that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They were given that four hundred years to repent. They heard all the story of the plagues of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel and that they were on the way to their land, yet there is no sign of repentance. In the year of Israel's journey to Canaan they might have sued for mercy, but we hear of the contrary. Forty years are given them to repent while Israel wanders in the wilderness. Probably, like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts because of the respite they well knew the fate which threatened them at the very border of the land israel waits three days but there is no suing for mercy or sign of repentance jericho is compassed seven days and every day is a day of mercy rahab and her house are saved and thereby is proven the possibility of salvation for all those who come asking mercy are saved the saved Gibeonites and God's witnesses to his mercy. In all the record of the war, this is the only case of anything like a desire for mercy or friendship with the people of God. Their fate came in spite of all a merciful God could do to save them. Mercy rejected is judgment invited. The national life of Israel lasted 1,500 years. It may be divided roughly into three periods of equal length the commonwealth, the kingdom, and the captivity. For after the return from Babylon, they were free from foreign interference, but for brief intervals. The state of Israel under the commonwealth in Canaan reflects the character of Jehovah in his love and purpose for that people and all mankind. It was an ideal condition. The land was all that could be wished. It was situated between the extremes of heat and cold. It was a land of plenty, flowing with milk and honey. The government was the least oppressive possible. The individual had the greatest liberty consistent with the common interest. It was the ideal social state. There was the maximum of rest and enjoyment with the minimum of labor. Three feasts in the year gave them recreation as well as rest and worship, for the feasts were such. Every seventh year was one of absolute rest, and every fiftieth year there were two years of rest in succession. In the seventh year all debts were cancelled, and in the fiftieth year every bondman went out free, and every homestead was restored to its owner. Thus everyone was given a fair chance once in his lifetime, no matter how unfortunate he had been. This system prevented the accumulation of vast fortunes, where debts were cancelled and lands restored, monopolies were impossible. There was no excessive wealth and no poverty. There was the ideal life of the country, with the advantages of the town, for the country was so fertile that it supported a dense population and towns were close together. Indeed, the most lived in town and went out to their daily labor. 
This was a sample Christ gave the world of what he could do and would do for mankind if they would obey him. Israel was a great object lesson of temporal prosperity flowing from godliness. All this reflects the heart of Jehovah. It was man back again in Eden and nearly as Eden was possible with fallen human nature. It was under such conditions Israel grew into a nation geographically. It was not uninterrupted advance, for there were six apostasies from each of which they were reclaimed by the chastisement of a foreign invasion and oppression. Their Jehovah was faithful to their best interests. They were by these made to abhor the heathen nations about them, the worship of whose gods was the cause of each apostasy. Israel was being taught to hate idolatry and to cleave to the one true God. They did not during this time advance much beyond their original borders, but grew and gradually filled the land. The kingdom was the divinely intended state for Israel. The enlarged nation needed the strength and orderly administration of the more powerful form of government. The world purposed of Jehovah required this also. All this so far was preparatory as to this. The great principle of service has as yet been but little displayed in the history of Israel. They had lived for themselves. Now they were ready to begin the fulfillment of the divine promise to Abram. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The preparation for this is seen in the development of a people physically and morally pure and having the true faith. Their location was all that was desired for such a purpose. They were at the center of the earth. It was needed that they should expand to the borders, promised Abram, from the river of Egypt into the great river, the river Euphrates. This would give them eastern as well as western seaports and enable them to control the highways of the world. All this required a leader and armies, in short, a kingdom. Their demand for a king was only wrong and being premature in the motive for it and the kind of king they wanted. It was Jehovah's purpose from the beginning to form them into a kingdom. But they, as the whole world also, must learn the value of God's king and sad experiences with their own kings. Under David and Solomon, who must be regarded as a continuation of the Davidic reign and principles, the nation was greatly enlarged and made a military power of great wealth. To some extent they began the world mission of disseminating the true faith. The surrounding nations learned of the one true God. The visit of the Queen of Sheba was an instance of many such visits of lesser note. It is no wild declaration to say that the continuation of the Davidic reign or equally strong and godly reigns would have in a few centuries extended the influence of the true faith all over the world. But he who said, My kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight, did not intend by the sword to evangelize the world. Israel was a preparation of the world for Christ in a better way. But there was a temporary purpose served in the world's evangelization by Israel in this time, as we will see later. Aside from the errors of Israel, the state under the Davidic kingdom was all that it was under the commonwealth with the added splendor and power nationally and a vast increase of individual wealth. 
and the king made silver to be in jerusalem as stones and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the lowlands from abundance the reign of christ on earth has ever been so wherever it has even for a short time and a limited area been permitted with david christ makes a new covenant it is the covenant of the kingship hitherto christ had not so revealed himself he was prophet and priest now he declares himself king the chief clause of the covenant is as follows thine house and thy kingdom shall be made sure for ever before thee thy throne shall be established for ever this has so far not been fulfilled as to the throne and kingdom of israel and david there is a spiritual fulfilment in christ but the covenant with david as the covenant with abram awaits its fulfilment it occupies a large place in the prophecies of both old and new testament israel is the people of david jerusalem the city of david the kingdom which is to come is the kingdom of the son of david it is the son of david who is to rule for ever and ever here then is the full type of christ as king all relating to christ as king must be studied from the standpoint of the throne of david or a correct conception cannot be had here is the identification of the throne of christ and david and its nature unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counsellor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government there shall be no end upon the throne of david and his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with judgment and with righteousness from henceforth and for ever this covenant is henceforth the hope of israel as a nation all the prophecies speak of it and point forward to it it is a new starting point for the nation the throne of david is the mountain peak of the coming glory for israel it is the hope after jesus came and is referred to by the apostles as the hope of israel the sure mercies of david it is identical with the kingdom israel the church and the world alike look to the establishing of the throne of david as their hope david gave israel spiritual truth as abram and moses gave them respectively physical and social being through david christ manifested himself spiritually david saw few if any visions nor did he work miracles or have any wrought for him his fellowship with christ was different in this respect from those who had gone before christ spoke in him rather than to him this is a great advance of the work of christ with man david lived the life of christ from cradle to throne he is the great messianic character of scripture he had the same ancestry was born in the same place and came to his place by the same course of obscurity and adversity he was betrayed by his own was received by few at first then by more and at last by all israel and in solomon attained to a measure of world-wide supremacy he was inspired to speak for christ in no other way can we explain the messianic psalms he uses words and figures which in no way were true of himself they pierced my hands and my side was not literally true of david and was of jesus hence it was he who spoke we see in him the spirit of christ 
no old testament writer attains to the spiritual conceptions of david the psalms read more like new testament writings than those of the old they not only describe the experience of david and christ but of the believer we go to them instinctively for help we travel a well-known path when we read them we feel we are following one who has been over the same experiences as ourselves we read in them not only the experiences and feelings of david but of christ only so can the psalms be understood david's grief and david's ecstasies were those of christ so was the love for the scriptures and for the people of god which david shows christ is best revealed in the psalms they are the climax of the spiritual revelation of jehovah hence we see the reason of the love of jesus for them there are among the psalms some whose spirits seem far from that of jesus these are usually termed the imprecatory psalms such as the seventh thirty-fifth sixty-ninth and one hundred and ninth yet it is noticeable that some of them the sixty-ninth especially are messianic from the latter are taken the quotations applied to christ the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up they gave me also gall for my meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink in those psalms then we are also to see christ speaking the persons against whom these imprecations are launched are indicated by peter's quotation of them as applying to judas iscariot whom christ said was a devil these psalms then refer to those like judas who by surrender to satan become part of that awfully sinful and accursed combination whose head is satan and who with all his host is doomed to suffer the outpouring of the wrath of god there is such an awful guilt in sin especially in its fountain head which we cannot understand but which christ did fully see and feel in all its venom this as represented in persons wilfully given up to it and face of light and warning is the object against which is launched the maledictions of these psalms the history of israel in its entirety may be represented by an ascending line to david and solomon and a descending line from that down to their final overthrow as a nation their climax was reached in the davidic kingdom they existed for a thousand years longer and enjoyed much blessings every way but in all fell short increasingly every way from that on after this we see the beginnings of disaster for the first time we see the people of god divided idolatry comes in apostasies come one after another led by their kings irreligion increases with luxury amos describes their summer and winter houses houses of ivory great houses houses of hewn stone here is a picture of their state ye that put away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that sing idle songs to the sound of the viol that devise for themselves instruments of music like david that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments but they are not grieved for the affliction of joseph religion was turned into a means of gain and luxury their religious times and ceremonies becomes abhorrent to their jehovah and they themselves sink lower in impiety 
jehovah follows them in a double line of dealing afflictions and prophetic warnings defeats in war and foreign invasion become frequent to the invisible armies of the kingdom of david their holy city is entered defiled and robbed internecine strife weakens and disgraces them insect plagues devour their crops famines waste them earthquakes terrify them and at last the end comes in overthrow israel is driven from their land and scattered over the earth and their holy city burned and their land left desolate all this did not happen in a short time it covered five hundred years nor did it come on them without warning nor without effort of the jehovah to save them there began with the decline of israel the long line of prophets whose words occupy the last quarter of the old testament we must not suppose that these books were all the messages given to the apostatizing nation israel swarmed with prophets during the centuries of her decline all these breathed the messages of their jehovah every prophet was a block thrown under the wheels of the chariot of israel in its mad rush down the declivity of national apostasy there are no more tender tones of love and pity than the beseeching of their jehovah through the prophets to backsliding israel it is the same christ who in jesus wept over them on the mount of olives in the prophets the figure of woman and wife is first applied to israel the people of god christ assumes the close relation of husband to his people in their decline he represents israel as an idolatrous wife and yet loves her and follows and entreats her return to his house in order that hosea may feel his grief he gives him for wife an abandoned woman that ezekiel may feel some of jehovah's loss he lets his wife die every prophet carries some of jehovah's burden the burden of the lord was the burden the lord himself bore first before being laid on the prophet jeremiah's tears were jehovah's in every prophet must be read not only the words but the heart of his master they were the constant attendants of israel in all their vicissitudes they went with them into captivity and dispersion they hung their harp in the willows of the euphrates and returned with them to the ruins of their city and cheered them as they began the toil of rebuilding surrounded by scoffing enemies and when jerusalem was rebuilt instructed and guided them each prophecy or more properly message may be divided into three parts warning exhortation and promise the warnings are plain and definite their fate is exactly foretold so also is the future of blessing after the affliction every sad message ends in a bright and hopeful outlook the valley of anchor is a door of hope although their fate at last becomes inevitable and cannot be averted even by repentance and all the prophet can do is like jesus to give his message and weep over them yet even then there is hope beyond jehovah will not and does not cast down his people into the gulf of despair the further shore of blessing is always discernible over every sea of sorrow the dark clouds of prophetic doom have an edge of silver cheer it is so israel went down not as those who have no hope did the nation die they rest in the grave of national death 
the penalty of violated vows and law and loss of faith in god but in the certainty of a national resurrection there jehovah has not forgotten his triple covenant given through abram moses and david israel is not lost but still lives as a people awaiting the call of their jehovah to national life and activity the great purpose for which they were chosen has not yet been fulfilled they are to be a blessing to the whole earth israel is left fixed for ever in the faith of the one true and living god idolatry has been utterly eradicated whatever else they may be or become israel will never be worshippers of any but the god of israel they are bound to each other and to their nation by the most honourable history and lineage the purest on earth their literature is the purest and oldest in the world their hold on life their mental and physical vitality the strongest they compete successfully with every race and wrest the prizes of life from all they have all the abilities for the formation of a great nation if settled under circumstances where their powers could operate in national autonomy toward enlargement and progress they wait as a people prepared by this long course of training for some great purpose their schooling seems complete they are fit for some great mission jehovah's people await jehovah's time and purpose a recent jewish writer has said if the history of israel which touches all recorded time has no dynamic significance supplies no hint as to the destiny of humanity then is life indeed a walking shadow and history a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing it is a story that has chapters in every country on earth and which has borne the impress of every period all ages pass through in marching procession israel's army to the jew the world owes its vision of god another has said israel is among the nations as the heart among the limbs renan says jerusalem is still the house of prayer for all nations in considering the work of christ in the old testament age we must not forget that he had a relationship to the whole race as well as to israel the children of his first human friend were not forgotten in all this time what he did for the world through israel was all the time in his mind he was not neglecting the world outside of israel the bible is a history of israel mainly therefore it records little of god's doing outside of that nation but there are glimpses of a wider sphere of divine working and worldwide acts of evangelizing grace in that old testament age the call and departure of abram was not without its effect on the land he left as well as on the land to which he went abimelech king of egypt received a divine message we have seen the exalted privilege the citizens of canaan enjoyed in the ministry of melchizedek the sojourn of israel in egypt was a protest then against idolatry and a mission of the truth this display of power in the plagues of egypt surely must have had effect on some in turning them from error israel in the wilderness was an astonishing evidence to the whole world of the reality power and goodness of god in canaan the nation was as we have seen a witness for god as a nation of the lord on the highway of the world israel was the observed of all nations the temple and its services 
attracted seekers after truth from all the world israel was a national missionary solomon was the greatest preacher the world has ever had his sermons were and are still given a world-wide circulation in babylon israel testified for god and not without effect nebuchadnezzar was converted by the power of their testimony and the hand of god upon him and issued to the world a proclamation confessing the truth of the god of israel and his acceptance of him and commanding all people everywhere to worship him and him only it is inconceivable that this royal evangel should not have led the effort in bringing many to know god jonah was sent to nineveh with a gospel message of repentance there followed the greatest revival the world has ever seen in the same length of time in three days a city of at least a million was turned from its sins and brought to repentance we have a right to see in this a sample of what god was constantly doing nineveh was no exceptional case in any way we may believe that the prophets of israel went everywhere and that many a city and land in that time had a visitation from the messenger of god in fact we may safely conclude that in one way or another israel did in a measure fulfil her mission and become in some degree a blessing to all the families of the earth in reviewing the history of christ's dealings with the ages of the old testament we discover that some things were thereby settled some facts demonstrated we have seen that man proved a failure under license so far from their becoming as gods as satan promised they became as devils and brought upon themselves swift destruction it was further shown by the actual demonstration that man was also a failure under law this is the testimony of the history of israel the whole religious system of moses was as perfect as divine wisdom could produce with any hope of its success it was a race specially chosen and prepared the law fitted close to every fact of life thou shalt and thou shalt not hedged in the israelite on every side he was commanded what to eat and where and how to cook and speak and wash and down to the minutest and most private acts all his worship was prescribed what was wrong was specifically named and he could not fail to know right and wrong for every sin there was a sacrifice for every act of ceremonial uncleanliness there was a ceremony of purification there were countless priests and levites to instruct him in carrying it out the service of the tabernacle and temple was most perfect in ceremony and significance the adornments were all that precious materials and skill could produce the feasts were continuous weekly monthly and three times a year and the great seven and fifty-year feasts added yet all failed to make or keep israel holy it failed because of the weakness of human nature it was scarcely inaugurated until as paul says and even the talmud shows it began to vanish away and little by little its provisions were dropped and those which were retained became mere forms covering lives and natures still unchanged it has been demonstrated that heredity environment and development cannot save man because they do not touch the heart the law was therefore swept away and the apostles forbade and condemned it as a means of salvation or christian living 
in view of all this the inquiry arises why did christ give the law it was and is the greatest blessing this world ever had next to christ it has made the world endurable but for this it would long ago have sunk into total corruption it has given to man the best system of ethics the world has ever had the world's jurisprudence is founded on the national code of israel man could not have lived without law as was seen in the case of the old world and sodom and the canaanites the law was israel's criminal and civil code further the law was educational it was israel's textbook it was their literature probably all they had it was above all a revelation to them of the holiness of god it lifted their idea of holiness and the character of god in israel and throughout the world to this day the sacrifices were a stay of proceedings of judgment against guilty man it has been shown that every sin deserves swift punishment god has so declared christ interfered by his first sacrifice in eden in behalf of man and was interfered in behalf of every sinner who comes to him the sacrifices of the law were the old testament way of coming to christ still further the law was the path which christ himself was to walk all was demanded of him he was called upon to fulfil all righteousness every sacrifice was a forfeit he was called upon to redeem he fulfilled the law in all its righteousness for himself and for those whose guilt he assumed paid the penalty with his life for israel paul wrote the law hath been our tutor to bring us unto christ regarding the church then and now as one it kept us in control and together until christ came to whom it turned us over its work being ended it served a spiritual purpose as showing the legal state into which some come by not understanding christ or coming fully to him it convicts of sin and shows the soul its need of christ concurrent with all this millions of people of god have been individually schooled for eternity the precious grain has been gathered into the garner another stage of the great demonstration has been conducted it has been shown what man is and will be under law as it was shown what he is and will be under license the results are recorded for the use of the eternal ages furthermore the most of all christ has been more fully manifested and in jehovah god was brought still nearer to man we begin to see the features of a well-known face and to hear a well-known voice end of chapter three part three recording by linda pretorius